Well, good morning. Oh, excellent. You all seem awake this morning. That is great. I have not had a lot of sleep. I don't know if you've noticed, if you've been on Facebook or anything, but right now it's prom season. Has anybody noticed that? It's prom season. I love prom pictures. Prom pictures are the best. And high school kids, I'm going to offend you right now, but I'm just the way it is, okay? I love prom pictures because you see these 16-year-old girls who kind of look like they're 25. They just look amazing in their dresses. And then you see the guy next to them, and he kind of looks like a 10-year-old in a monkey suit with this really big <laughs> smile. And you just see prom pictures over and over, and all I can think is in this guy's head is he's thinking, I got a date. I got a date. <laughs> and all the young lady is thinking is, really? I'm with him? <laughs> anyway. You ever felt like you were on a mission? Like you just knew there was something you had to do? In college, I was on a mission. I had been, you know, just kind of minding my own business, going through college, and there was this girl that just kept coming up over and over and over in my mind, over and over and over. I was always thinking about her. Every time I'd see her, I'd think, man, she's great. I really like this girl. And my heart began to become shaped towards this young lady, and her name was Kara. And over time, I realized I got to do something about this, so I broke up with the girl that I was dating, and I began to pursue a relationship with Kara. And I, I'll be honest with you, she was way, way, way out of my league. But over time, I kind of weaseled my way into her life and we began to date. And I'd bump into people and they'd say, you're, you're dating Kara? And I'd say, yeah, yeah. And they'd go, really? And I'd say, yeah. And like one guy kind of typified the response of people. He was like, how did you do that? Like, you know, I had some kind of voodoo power or something. And over time, I began to become a little insecure about this because everyone was noticing she's way, way out of my league. So I finally said to this one guy, I said, well, there's this amazing invention. It's called the telephone. And I picked it up and I dialed some numbers. I got her on the phone and I asked her to go somewhere. And she said, yes, that's kind of how it works. And he was like, wow, you are blessed. <laughs> yeah, I'm so blessed that she eventually married me and we've been together 27 years. But I was on a mission. I guess that's pity right there. We well, got a wife and she stayed with him. That's amazing. Anyway, yeah. So some of, us, some of you have had moments where you feel like you're on a mission. There was a small group leader and he's talking to a little boy uh, in his class and he said, does anybody know why it's important to be quiet in church? And the boy said, yep, because people are sleeping. So my hope for you this morning is that you'll be awake to what God wants to do in and through you this, and his people, and you will find God's mission for you this morning. We are in week 29 of a 31-week series called The Story. We have been surveying the entire Bible. We are almost done. All of God's revelation to us. And we found that in the Old Testament, God chose the people of Israel to win people back to himself. He chose them very purposely to have a special relationship, to bless him, that they would be his messengers. And even though they failed many times over and over, they were his messengers to the world. And in the Gospels, we see that God sent his divine son, Jesus, to enter the world, to take on flesh, to die on the cross, to pay the penalty for our sin so that we could uh, have a relationship with him. And he vanquished the problem of sin once and for all. He was the messenger. And in the second half of the New Testament, we started to see that God has chosen his church to be his messengers to a hurting and lost and dying world so that people can find their way back to God. And two weeks ago, we were in the book of Acts, and we learned the church isn't a movie theater. 
where we come to be entertained. And the church isn't a gas station where we stop in once a week to fill up. And it's not a restaurant where we make our orders and we make our choices and we wait to be served. We said that the church is a community, it's a family, and that the church as a group is on mission. And then we looked the week before that at Acts 1, chapter 8, where Jesus told his disciples, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. And the first part of the book of the Acts, you could see God building his church in Jerusalem and Judea and then Samaria. And we're going to look at today the part where the gospel begins to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. And we're going to see the life of one particular person named Saul and how he was most instrumental, humanly speaking, in spreading the gospel to their immediate vicinity and eventually to the world. So I want to look at this. In the context of the book of Acts, I want to tell you a little bit of a story of Paul, okay? Or Saul, excuse me. We'll get to the Paul part in a minute. I want to tell you the story of Saul. The church in the early part of Acts has begun to preach the gospel. Now, the religious leaders of the day, the Jews, have decided they think they are done with this whole Jesus movement because they executed him, they killed him, but lo and behold, he came back to life and his followers become these crazy zealots saying, you won't believe this, Jesus is alive, and you have to hear the story. So they begin to preach, and thousands, literally, in Jerusalem are coming to faith in Jesus. So the religious leaders, this isn't just a one-day kind of thing, this is going on and on and on, and you read the first part of the book of Acts, and they are getting more and more and more afraid. Because this Jesus movement, which they think they quashed, is now spreading. So one of the days, they come across a follower of Jesus, his name was Stephen. They kind of grab him out of the marketplace on some trumped-up charges, and they bring him in for a trial. And they accuse him of blasphemy. He says, okay, so let me defend myself. And in his defense, he preaches this sermon from the Old Testament, proclaiming basically, this is what God has been setting us up for, for the Messiah, and it's Jesus, and he died. You killed him, and he came back to life, and I serve him now. And in rage at what he said, they dragged him out of the city and they stoned him to death. Now, stoning is a pretty gruesome way to die, if you think about it. Stoning was when they literally picked up stones and threw them at an individual until the person was dead. And it's kind of a communal sentence as well, because it's not done by some nameless, unknown person. As a community, they rally around and they come to the place and everyone picks up rocks and they throw them and kill them. And it's a communal judgment and it's a communal guilt. And they have stoned Stephen to death. And our first introduction to this guy Saul is there in Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 1. So if you can put that up there. It says that Saul was one of the witnesses and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. And a great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem And all the believers except the apostles were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. God is using uh, persecution here, you can see in the text, to drive the church out of Jerusalem to the surrounding areas. Because they're afraid and being attacked, they're moving out and Saul has a new mission. He's a young Pharisee, and he's decided he is going to be the primary persecutor of the church. So Saul's job now, really, his mission is to destroy the Jesus movement, is to destroy the church. And he's arresting and killing men and women and children simply because they believe in Jesus. If you think about it, he's a first-century religious terrorist in the most pure sense of the word. Because of what someone believes or someone thinks, he's decided it is his job with the authorities to go and find them and to take them out. And imagine, 
imagine this. Okay, it kind of gives you this mindset of 1930s uh, Germany. They are going house to house to find anyone who will name the name of Christ so they can drag him out and put him in prison. And Saul is leading the way. That's his mission, that's his job, that's who he is. But God had other plans for Saul. So we pick up the story, the very next chapter in Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Acts 9, starting in verse 1, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the, the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest and he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, which is north, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any following the way. That's what they were calling this movement, the way. He found there, and he wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. And as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So Saul picked himself up off the ground, and when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus, and he remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. So Saul's on this mission to destroy the Jesus movement, and lo and behold, there is an intervention on the road to Damascus. He's on a mission, and Jesus appears to him, shocks him, and says, this is not your mission anymore. And isn't it interesting that all he has to say is, when Saul says, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus. And it kind of changes everything for Saul. But he gets up and he's blind and he goes into the city and he has this intervention that happens. It's kind of like if you've ever been around toddlers, lots of times toddlers just kind of want to take off and run and they don't really care where they're going. They're just running in a direction. And you have to kind of get in front of them and kind of pick them up, turn them around and send them back in the right direction. It's kind of like an intervention for Saul. Kind of saying, hey, you are running fast, but that is the wrong direction, boy. Let me pick you up and send you the other way. And this is a massive intervention, and it's a massive change for Saul. So much so, got to pick up the rest of the story here, starting in verse 10. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. It's always great when the Lord speaks to you in a vision and uses your name, right? Ananias. (laughs) Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to the straight street, to the house of Judas, and when you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so that he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things that this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. Isn't this a great interaction here? Ananias says, hear the Lord call him. And he starts very well. He says, yes, Lord, let me help you out. If you ever hear the Lord speak to you, and the Lord uses your name, your first response should be, yes, Lord. Kind of like I train my kids. When dad's speaking and he asks you a question, just say, yes, dad. Don't say, I don't know, or I don't want to. Say, yes, dad. Yes, Lord. But it doesn't go well from there, because the middle, he says, but Lord. Let me help you out here. If you're ever speaking to the Lord, do not start a sentence with, but Lord. There is nothing that you can finish that sentence with that's going to be good, okay? God gives you a command, you say, but Lord... It's not a smart response. But Ananias feels this need to help God out. Evidently, you know, he's way up in heaven. Maybe he's distracted by all the worship or there's some planets in his way. But he feels the need to kind of give him some details and information that you may not be aware of. Hey, by the way, Lord, um, you may not know this, but we all know this down here. This guy's a bad dude. Okay, this is not really a good plan. So why don't you put back in your planning machine, kind of run it by the angel council, and maybe we can come up with something else, okay? 
Ananias does not want this mission. He's objecting. I mean, can you blame him? I mean, this is dangerous. This guy's the leading religious terrorist of his day. And the Lord's saying, yeah, go, go talk to him. Pick it up in verse 15. But the Lord said, go. For Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to the kings, as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and he found Saul and he laid hands on him and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. And if you read the rest of the chapter, Saul begins instantly to teach about this man Jesus who was, came to the earth, was God in human flesh, resurrected from the dead, and is now changing people's lives, including his own. He instantly begins to reason with the religious leaders of his day. It's interesting here. And if you're writing things down, I want you to write this down. The first thing I want you to notice is this, that God chooses unlikely people for himself. God chooses unlikely people for himself. It says very clearly that Saul is his chosen instrument. He will use him to accomplish his purposes, and it doesn't matter who he was. It only matters that God has chosen him. Some of us, I don't know if you're like me, but some of us are a little bit what you would call unlikely instruments to be used by God. Maybe nobody would have picked you for serving Jesus earlier. Maybe you were too hurt or too unnoticed or you were too angry or you're too self-centered or you didn't care or you're too smart to believe in God and you are one of those urbane, hip, well-read people that are too smart to embrace fairy tales. If you are, you probably haven't been my friend. I've never been one of those people and never been considered smart and urbane and hip. But maybe you're one of those people that you're too something in order for God to use. But when God chooses you, your warts, your hang-ups, all your issues, all wrapped together in one package, all your weaknesses, and lavishes his love on you, he can use you. Now, some of you today are not believers in Jesus. You are kind of checking out the faith thing, and we are so glad that you are here. I am personally excited that you are here this morning. And maybe you're wondering, could God even use someone like me? Let me help you out. He can use you. If he can use a terrorist like Saul to spread his church, he can use you no matter what your story is. Whether you've hated him in the past or hate him now, if you hear his voice and you respond to him in faith, you can have a great story to tell. So you may feel like your story's already written. I've kind of already made those decisions. I'm kind of locked in my ways. You know, this is me. This is who I am. I'm the guy or the girl or whatever. Well, Saul thought that way too. I'm the terrorist. I persecute the church. But when God stepped in and intervened, it changed everything, and he had a new mission. And God can intervene and change everything, and you can have a new mission too. So the most unlikely persecutor of the church becomes a key player in spreading the gospel, and eventually he becomes a leader in the church at Antioch, which is in Syria, near Aleppo. So it's about 10 to 15 years later, Paul's gone from being the persecutor to he's actually building the church. He's one of the leaders. We pick up his story here in Acts, starting verse uh, chapter 13. It says, one day, as these men, the leaders of the church, were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, dedicate Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. So after more prayer and fasting, the men laid their hands on them and sent them away. So Barnabas and Saul were sent out by the Holy Spirit. The person of the Holy Spirit again breaks in to their little worship time and he says, I want you to set apart Barnabas and Saul for the purpose I have for them. Now, I'm not sure if this is an audible voice or maybe over a period of a couple weeks, they all became to come to the conclusion that God was doing something special and Saul and Barnabas have to go, but they come to this conclusion. It's kind of James Bondish, isn't it? You know, 
set them apart. I've got a mission for them. Maybe kind of like that Mission Impossible. You know, they're kind of getting the tape from God. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is spread the gospel around the world. This tape and you will self-destruct if you don't accept the mission. But God sets them apart. The Holy Spirit breaks in. And he says, I want to dedicate these two to the mission. Now, when I was thinking about what it means to be dedicated, what came to mind for me was, have you ever had something special, maybe a leftover from a restaurant or, you know, kind of the last piece of pie in the pie tin, and you kind of want to mark it for yourself, you don't want anybody else to eat it? I grew up in a family of five children, okay? Writing on something in the refrigerator was kind of like a mild suggestion. Most people didn't even slow down to look at what was written on it, whether it was an expiration date or anything like that. It was just if it was in the fridge, it was fair game, and it was eaten. And I have two teenage sons, and I usually blame them when things disappear in the fridge, even though it might have been me sometimes that eat the things that are dedicated for someone else. But Paul, the, the scripture's saying that they're dedicated, they're set aside, kind of like the food in the fridge. want to set them apart for a very special purpose just for my use. So the Holy Spirit, again, breaks in. He says, this is my mission I want to give him. I want you to notice this, the second thing. And then in Saul's life, we see this, that God sends his people on his missions. God sends his people on his missions. And you may think you have no purpose in the world, but you do. You just may not know it yet. It may not have been revealed yet, but you were created to do something just like Saul, Jesus, the Jesus-hating terrorist, God is sending you. And it may be a process for you to understand what that is. Maybe your mission right now is just your neighborhood or your children or your coworkers. It may change later. God may have something else for you. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you have a mission. And we've been talking about it throughout this series. So Saul's mission is to go plant churches in the Roman Empire. So this is what he does. Okay? If you look at uh, chapter 13, the rest of the chapter, we can kind of see it on a map here. Call it the first missionary journey. Theologians are such a great creative bunch, aren't they? Paul goes on a missionary journey. What do they label it? The first missionary journey. So he and Barnabas... Go down to the coast, they get in a boat, and they sail to Cyprus, which is where Barnabas was from. They reach a city called Salamis, and they preach in synagogues. They kind of move across the island, and eventually they end up at the city called Paphos, which is on the west coast. And they're opposed by some people. There's a magician named Elimus. And by the power of the Spirit, Saul temporarily blinds him. Does that sound familiar, temporary blindness? He temporarily blinds this guy because he's opposing the mission of the gospel. And the proconsul there of the Roman Empire believes. And from there... Luke simply says that Saul, who was also called Paul, goes on the rest of his journey. Now, pastors, and I'm one of them, so you've got to give them a break, oftentimes like to say that God changed his name from Saul to Paul. But it's not really a name change. It's just kind of a name shift, like when you shift languages. Like, my name's David, and in Spanish, what is David in Spanish? Anybody know? David, yeah. It's not a name change. It's just the Spanish version of David. Or... If you're coming from Spanish into English and you're called Jorge in English, lots of times we translate that to George, yeah. Or if you're coming from someplace else and your name's like Wondolowski, I don't know, maybe it gets changed to Wonder, I don't know, but it's not a name change, it's just a different language. And here, Saul's kind of the Hebrew version, Paul is the Greek and Latin version. So it just starts referring to him, and after that, just in Acts, they just refer to him as Paul. So he gets his name shifted there. And then from Cyprus, they sailed to what is modern-day Turkey, an area called Pamphylia at the time, and they landed in Perga. And then they moved inland to a place called Antioch in the Pisidian region. Now, this is not the Antioch they came from. It's a different Antioch, okay? And there, after this long journey, it's about 100 miles, they walked by foot over some rough terrain, they begin to preach in the synagogue, and many people believe. They're actually invited to preach in the synagogue. 
And as people are believing, the religious leaders, the synagogue leaders are like, hey, this is no good. They're getting taken away from us by these new guys. So they begin to oppose them. So they say, okay, fine. We won't preach in the synagogue. We're going to go to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, everybody else. We're going to bring the message of Jesus to everybody else. And for a few weeks, the gospel starts to spread throughout the region. But then the religious leaders begin to incite the crowd and they create a mob and they kind of run them out of town. So they move down the road to Iconium. Paul and Barnabas get there. They begin to preach. Again, many people believe they do some miracles and the religious leaders in the city get upset and they incite a mob and they force them to flee down the road. Eventually, they end up in Lystra where they preach. Many people believe. Can you see the pattern here? They preach. Many people believe. They heal a guy and the crowd is so excited that they start to proclaim that Paul and Barnabas are gods and it is difficult for them to restrain them from actually sacrificing to them. They have to keep saying, no, 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 we're just men like you who worship Jesus. He's the one that gives the power. So the crowd is pretty excited there in Lystra. But the Jews and the religious leaders in Iconium hear that they're down in Lystra stirring up the crowd again, so they come down, and they stir up the crowd, and there's a riot, and this time it gets rougher. And they actually drag Paul out of the city, and they stone him, and they leave him for dead and go back in. Now here's the scene, okay? The disciples standing around, Barnabas, wow, that's not good. Paul's dead. What do we do now? And shockingly, Paul gets up. They think he's dead, but he's not actually dead. And he says, hey, let's go back into the city. Now imagine, Paul's just been stoned, and he says, yeah, let's go back in. Yeah, uh, Paul, one of those rocks hits you a little harder than you think, okay? That's the dangerous spot. Why don't we go somewhere else? But actually, they actually go back into the city. What amazing courage. They go back into the city. Now the next day, they move down the road to a place called Derby. Again, many people believe the gospel spreads. And then they decide to head home. So to head home, they just retrace their steps backwards through uh, that part of Turkey, and they head home. And while they go, they strengthen the believers as they come to find them. They help them form churches. They appoint leadership in the power of the Holy Spirit, and they set up churches all over that portion of southern Turkey. And then eventually, Paul and Barnabas and Paul does this two more times. Two more missionary journeys to actually get into Greece And eventually he ends up in Rome, but that's for another week. So as he's going through all this, we see these things. And while he's on these missionary journeys, he begins to write letters to the churches. And Paul's actually responsible for planting more than 10 churches and writing 13 letters to the believers and the church planters and the leaders that he has left behind to communicate to them the truth of the gospel and help them grow in their faith. And that's the core of what we call the New Testament. So he's had this massive impact, this Jesus hater, this guy who wanted to destroy the movement who's now become its chief proponent. But in the process, as you saw just a little bit, Paul comes across lots of opposition. It's not like being on mission with Jesus means everything's easy. Lots of times it's difficult. Very, very difficult. In fact, Paul has to actually defend himself to one of the churches. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he's comparing himself to some of his opponents who are saying he's not really qualified to lead the church. So this is what he says to the folks at uh, Uh, Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He has to compare himself and he says, I've worked harder. I've been put in prison more often. I've been whipped times without number and faced death again and again. Five times, five different times, the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Now the 39 lashes is important because 40 lashes was considered a death sentence. You couldn't whip someone 40 times unless they were sentenced to death. So lots of times they would just whip you 39 times because that wasn't considered a death sentence. Now you might still die but they didn't actually give you a death sentence. So 39 lashes, five times he gets it. 
Uh, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I've traveled on many long journeys. I've faced dangers from rivers and from robbers. I've faced dangers from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I've faced dangers in the cities and in the deserts and on the seas. And I've faced danger in the, uh, from men who claim to be believers but are not. I've worked hard and long and during many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty and I've often gone without food. And I've shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Paul's recounting the difficulties that he's gone through as he's proclaimed this message of Christ. Jesus said when he called them, and he said to Ananias that he would have to suffer for the cause, and he has. But in the midst of it, he still has hope. Paul still has joy. Paul still loves the very people that are trying to destroy him in the gospel. He loves them. Now, how is a man able to do this, all those things that he experiences, and yet supernaturally he seems to demonstrate these qualities and these characteristics that wouldn't just be normal, wouldn't be a normal response? How is he able to overcome these harsh circumstances, the disappointments, the opposition, and in the midst of all this, model love to others? Well, that's our third point. That is that the Holy Spirit empowers his people to be like Jesus. Now, the Holy Spirit's been showing up all throughout the story. Way back in Genesis at creation, the Holy Spirit was hovering over the waters at creation. Genesis 1, chapter 2. In the Old Testament, in Moses and in David and Solomon and Gideon, in the prophets, the Holy Spirit filled them and empowered them to bring God's message. In Jesus' life, when he was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. The Holy Spirit has been coming throughout the story. And the book of Acts is called the Acts of the Apostles, but it might be better named the Acts of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is mentioned 57 times in this one book alone. So Paul's able to remain joyful because the Holy Spirit is living inside of him and empowering him. And he makes an analogy to the church at Ephesus, which he plants in his third missionary journey. He says this in Ephesians 5.18. Don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a great illustration, and lots of times people miss this. Paul is comparing being drunk with wine to being filled with the Spirit. Now, not that you all hang out with these type of people, right? I'm sure this is not the case. But you've probably heard or maybe heard of people who've said things like, oh, don't pay any attention to that. He's just, that's just the beer talking. Oh, oh, don't mind what he's saying or what he's doing. That's just the wine talking. Have you ever heard people say that? Not you, I know. You all are perfect. But uh, some of you maybe know people who might have experienced that or, or maybe experienced that themselves. Because when people are drunk with wine or with beer or with alcohol, they're filled with alcohol, it changes them. They act differently than they normally would. They speak differently than they normally would. Like, if you ever want to see what alcohol does to people, just turn on the show Jail. Turn on the show Jail. People come into jail. It's a great show. It's a kind of a reality show. And they are angry and swearing and throwing stuff and creating all kinds of havoc. And, you know, five or six hours later after sleeping it off and they're kind of sober now, all of a sudden they're much more compliant and able to kind of go through the process. And Paul's saying, being filled with the Spirit, don't be drunk with wine, that will destroy you. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Because when you're filled with the Spirit, you actually act different. You say things you wouldn't normally say naturally. You do things. In fact, you begin to look and act and talk like Jesus. The Spirit, when he's in you, begins to produce changes and differences in our life. And if you are a believer in Christ, a 33-year-old carpenter does not come and invade your life. He comes in the person of the Holy Spirit who takes up residence inside of us. And that produces the character of Christ. And so as a believer, we have a choice. We can walk according to our own power, which the scripture calls the power of the flesh, or we can walk according to the Spirit. 
And if we walk according to the Spirit, it does different things. In Galatians 5, 16, Paul's writing to the churches we just described, Iconia, Lystra, Derby. They're in the region of Turkey called Galatia at the time. So he's writing to the book, to the churches at Galatia in uh, Galatians chapter 5, and he says this. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. He's making clear we have a choice. You can walk according to the flesh, your old nature, your sin nature, the stuff that leads you away from God, the temptation, or you can walk according to the Spirit. Like wine, the Holy Spirit can change your temperament, your character, all those things. You can avoid temptation. You can be empowered by God to live your life on God's mission. And if you do this, you will not look like you're walking according to the flesh. And what this produces in you is this, in Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Again, he's making clear to them, when you live by the Spirit, these are the things that it produces. And if you go read the chapter in Galatians 5, he lists a bunch of stuff that walking in the flesh produces as well. Stuff that's against God, not the way God would have us to live. Or we can choose to walk according to the Spirit. And it will produce love and joy and peace and forbearance. And I don't know about you, but when I think about walking with Jesus, what I want my life to be like is to look like Jesus' life looked. And the way we get that is by choosing to walk in step with the Spirit. Walk in step with the Spirit, just like it says. And practically, I want to be honest with you, most of us don't spend enough time studying God's Word, in prayer, connecting with God and the Holy, what the Holy Spirit wants to do in order for us to actually hear when the Holy Spirit is saying, I'm right here, let me empower you, let me give you strength, let me transform you. Because the Holy Spirit, if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit lives in you, and he is speaking. The question is, are we listening? And if you want to see a radically different life like Paul had, we have to consciously choose to walk in the power of the Spirit. And that's, a, that's an act of faith. And I, it's hard to explain, but as we get better at listening to the Holy Spirit and actually choosing to walk in his power, our lives are different. Our lives are transformed. So in conclusion... God chooses unlikely people and he sends his followers on his missions and he uses the Holy Spirit to empower God's people for his work. Maybe you're an unlikely person. Maybe you think my story can't impact others. Maybe you were a God hater or you were a good girl who tried to earn her way to God's favor. The truth is that God can use anyone. Anyone. And many of us think my story's not crazy like Paul's. You know, I didn't have a main intervention on the road. Well, you know what? Crazy stories are great for showing God's power, but very few people can connect with them. There's just not that many people in the world who are former gangbangers and prostitutes and terrorists. A lot of them are a lot like you. They're just normal people trying to get through life, find their way, and your normal story of how God changed your life will have a huge impact on them. Or maybe you think, man, I'm kind of unlikely to be sent. You know, I'm kind of weighed down. Maybe you came to faith, you know, and you said, God, I got some issues. God can work through them. When I trusted Christ as a 16-year-old, I told God, there are three things that will not change, okay? This was how smart I was at 16. God, I want to follow you and love you. There are three things that won't change. One is, I'm not breaking up with my girlfriend. Two, I'm not telling anybody about this. And three, no matter what, I am not going to Africa and being a missionary. It's just not happening. I'm not doing it. That was my perception of what God wanted to do. Within three weeks, the girl broke up with me, so I was taken care of. Within three months, I couldn't stop 
telling people about my relationship with God because they kept saying, you are different. What is going on? Something is changing you. And I'm like, yeah, it's this Jesus thing. I know I'm not really a likely candidate, but here it is. So I'm telling people about it. And within three years, I'm in Africa proclaiming Jesus to people out in the bush, way, way out there for a summer and loving every minute of it because God changed me. 2 Corinthians 5 says that we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. And we speak, we speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. That is our mission. And wherever you are, that is your mission. Whether it's distant lands or your local neighborhood and your coworkers, you represent Christ now and you can share your life. Or maybe you're saying, I'm lacking power. I don't have the power to do what he's called me to do. Well, God has already made that power available to you in the Holy Spirit. And you simply have to trust that he is there, trust that he will transform you and give you the words you need, give you the power you need to resist temptation, to be different, and he actually does it. It's a step of faith, and we don't want to live in our power, we want to live in his. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the life of Paul, how you showed us that you can transform us, that you choose unlikely people. And Lord, I'm so grateful you chose me, just an unlikely kid in the suburbs of New Jersey, far from you, but needing your mercy and grace. Thank you for how you've chosen so many in this room. And I pray for those who have not yet come to faith in you. Lord, would you break in today and let them hear your voice, that they would know that you want to choose them, the unlikely person that they are, for your purposes and to bring glory to you. Thank you for your grace and your love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.